I was thinking about a scripture when we were singing that last song, and it's it's out of Second Samuel. Seven eighteen, David said this. It says, "Then David the king went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O Lord God?'" And what is my house that you have brought me this far? Boy, what a thing to think about. Who am I, Lord God, that you have brought me this far? You know, God could have blinded our eyes the rest of our life that we would never know who he is. And we'd be lost eternally. But because of his great love, his graciousness, he's brought us out of darkness. And he's let us see the truth and to know the truth. So, Lord, who am I that I should ever think that I am something when I'm nothing? Because it's all of you. Because apart from you, What have I got? I have no family. I have no friends because I'm changed. And everything is different. So it's all about God. It's not about us. A couple of weeks ago, we did, looked in Matthew 5 at two of the Beatitudes. And I bring that up because that's not where we're going to be today. Later on, but I just felt like I needed to go back to the beginning of the book of Matthew before I went any further in the Beatitudes. And I'm not sure I can give you a good explanation as to why. It just is what it is. I just felt like that's where I needed to be. You know, whether we pick up the Bible for the first time or many times, it can seem to be overwhelming. It can seem to be confusing, disjointed, 
and hard to figure out what in the world is going on. Depending on the size of the print, the fonts, the number of notes in it, and other things, the Bible can easily be over 2,000 pages. And if you get some of these study Bibles, it's close to 3,000. But just if you get rid of all the notes and just the Word of God, it's still 1,600, 1,700 pages with any kind of print that you can read. Imagine taking a manuscript to a publisher and saying, here's my book for you to publish. It's only 2,000 pages. What in the world? Who would have a book like that? But this, this Bible is anything but an ordinary book. It's God's word to us covering thousands of years, telling us how things began, how things are going to end, and everything that's important in between. Some things that God tells us are not difficult to understand. Some things have to be pondered and meditated about and considered for a while before the truth sinks in. And some things take more than a lifetime for any kind of clarity. But easy or difficult, God doesn't waste his breath. It's all a part of his story. And it should be searched out and studied for our well-being. So before we get back to the Beatitudes sometime in the future, in Matthew 5, I want to take a closer look at what happens in the first chapter. We're not going to go verse by verse because the first 17 verses of the first chapter is a genealogy. A genealogy is a list of the people that came before you, your ancestors. And that's what Matthew is giving here. He's giving the ancestors of Jesus, his father, his great-grandfather, all the way back hundreds of years. You know, if I were getting ready to write an interesting and exciting life story about myself, it wouldn't be that interesting, but about somebody else, the last thing I would do would start the two-thirds of the first chapter with a list of ancestors. I might put it in footnotes at the end of the book, but I sure wouldn't put it in the first chapter. That would be an ideal way to get people not to read any further. But it's important here. It's important because God said that this is something that you need to know. And that's exactly what Matthew does. The very first verse first says, The record of the genealogy, the ancestry, of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. 
Why does Matthew start his book this way? He does it because if you're going to claim that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one of God, if you're going to say that, then you're going to have to show that he descended from Abraham, who was the father, the, the one that God made the covenant with to bless all the nations of the world. You've got to show that he came from Abraham. And then this person is also have to be descended from King David because scripture again and again calls the Messiah David's greater son. So scripture says the Messiah, the one God that is God is going to send has to come from Abraham because Abraham was the beginning of the Jewish people. He has to come from Abraham. And he has to come from David because David is the greatest king Israel had. And God again and again promised that Israel would never or that there would never be a time in the end that the son of David did not be the king over everything. Sit on the throne of God. So this is what he says. Uh, Genesis 22.18, just as a reference. says, in your seed, that means your descendants, talking to Abraham, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So, you've got to come from Abraham. And Isaiah 9 says, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with peace and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So these are two things that the Messiah is going to have to be. He's going to have to be descended from Abraham, and he's got to find Jesus, I mean David, in his ancestry. David has got to be his forefather. By the time Matthew wrote this gospel, the title Son of David was a messianic title. Everyone knew what it meant. So when people said Son of David, and Jesus is called this over and over again, they knew exactly what it meant. Any claim to be the Messiah has to be authenticated. It has to be proven. You just can't go around and say, I'm a son of Abraham. I'm a son of David. Therefore, I qualify to be a Messiah. You have to prove your lineage. You have to prove that you're descended from these people.
There were many false prophets and many false messiah in Jesus' time, and there are today. Matthew 24, 24 says, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders, so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. So there are other people running around saying, I'm the one. So how do you tell? Well, first of all, you have to examine his ancestors. Because if he doesn't have this linkage to his fathers and grandfathers, then he's lying. And you can automatically know that he's false. The Jews were waiting for the right one, but he had to have the right credentials. Rabbis agreed on the absolute necessity of the Messiah's link to David based on a number of scriptures in the Old Testament. Jeremiah, chapter 30, and there God says he's going to restore the first fruits of Israel. They're going to take possession of the land. Their yoke of slavery will be broken. And especially in verse 9, he says, But they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Now, Jeremiah is talking this about this many, many years after David has died. So he's saying in the future there's going to be another king that's descended from David who's going to sit on the throne forever. And in Ezekiel 34... It says, I will rescue my flock. They shall no, no longer be a prey, and I will judge between sheep and sheep. And whilst I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them, I am the Lord, I have spoken. And there are many, many other scriptures where God promises these things. David is going to be the one forever. So whoever this Messiah is going to be, he's got to be descended directly from David. And so this is what Matthew does in chapter 1. He shows that Jesus is directly descended from Abraham and he's also directly descended from David the king. This genealogy, if you read through all of this father, grandfather, back, 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 it seems dull to us because we don't know a lot of these names, especially if you're new to the Bible. But it wouldn't seem dull to the Jews of that day because they knew who their fathers were. They knew who their grandfathers were, and they knew who their great-grandfathers were. They had to know this to prove they were a Jew. The Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling body, kept records of everybody's genealogy, everybody's family history. So that it could be searched any time. And they could be used to prove who you were descended from. One thing of interest is that no, today no Jew 
can prove that he's a direct descendant of David. Because all the records have been destroyed over hundreds of years when the Jews have gone through one massacre after another. There are no records left. Nobody can prove their ancestry. Nobody can prove that they are descendant of Abraham. Nobody can prove that they are descendant of David. It doesn't exist. So anybody that comes along today says, I'm the Messiah, then you can say, prove it. And they can't. Because the ancestry is not there. There are no records. But there was a record for Jesus showing that he was exactly who Matthew said he was. If you compare Matthew's genealogy to a genealogy that you also find in the book of Luke, you'll find that only Matthew goes back to Abraham. Luke goes all the way back to Adam the first man. That's because Matthew wants to show that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises that God made to the one he made the original covenant with, Abraham. So the Jews are interested in who's descended from the one that God made the original covenant with, which is Abraham. Luke goes back to Adam because he wants to show that Jesus is the Savior of all people, Everywhere. And Adam is the first man. So everybody's connected to Adam. There are many features in Adam's genealogy that stand out and just talk about two because you could go into many, many different things. Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, was sent into exile into the country of Babylon in 587 B.C., And from that time on, there was no successor, no descendant of David that ever sat on the throne of Israel. But now Matthew is saying that there's one now. There hasn't been one for over 500 years, but there's one now. Jesus the Messiah has come. In fact, this fulfilled prophecy comes from Isaiah, and is in Isaiah 11, and this is a prophet that spoke about 500, 550 years before Matthew is writing. And Isaiah says, if I can find it, mm-hmm. 11, says, then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. A shoot is like a little new piece of vegetation that comes up from the soil. It's, it's a fresh flower. It's a fresh uh, piece of vegetation that breaks through the soil. And Isaiah is saying a shoot is going to spring up. It's going to come out of the ground. From the stem of Jesse, and Jesse is the father of David the king. It says, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So from this stump, remember, no kings, 
that have descended from David have sat on the throne for over 500 years. It's like a tree that's been cut down. There's nothing left but a stump in the ground. And Isaiah says, out of this stump, out of what's been cut off, out of the kingdom that's been, that has disappeared because it's been cut down, cut down, no descendant of David, there's going to be a new growth coming out of the stump that's going to be restored. And this new growth that's coming out is going to be the king that's going to set, sit on the throne of Israel forever. It's interesting to note that in a place called Stanley Park in Vancouver, Canada, near the entrance to the zoo in that particular city, there's an example of a tree just like I mentioned. A giant Douglas fir, more than 10 feet in diameter, was cut down. And it was cut down to about the height of your shoulder. And yet right now, from this stump, from this tree that was cut down, in the center of it, a new tree is growing. And it's already more than three feet in diameter. So this happens in nature. And this is exactly what Matthew is saying, what Isaiah said. That from this seemingly disappeared kingdom, a new king is going to come up. And it's going to be the descendant of David, which everybody thought, how can this be anymore? Because there hasn't been one for 550 to 600 years. But this is what God does. Because God says, if I say it, it's going to happen. A second interesting feature of this genealogy is the mention, and we haven't read it, but in this genealogy, Five women are mentioned. And this is really unusual because in genealogies and a listing of ancestors in Jewish history, you very rarely ever see women mentioned because women don't have status. They don't have the right to, to, to participate in government or anything like this. So you don't mention women. But in Jesus' line of descent, Five women are mentioned. Now Mary is one of them, and that's obvious, Mary the mother of Jesus. But there are four other women listed. And the women that are listed, and if you know anything about the Bible, you'll recognize these names. If they're new to you, I understand it might be confusing. But the ones that are mentioned... The first one is Tamar. Now here is Tamar's claim to fame. She seduced, in other words, she went to her father-in-law and got her father-in-law, Judah, to have sex with her so that she could have a child, so that the child could inherit the estate. So you've got Tamar, she's listed. Then you've got Rahab, and Rahab was one that took in the spies of Israel when they were 
going into the promised land for the first time. And she was became a friend of Israel, but she was a pagan prostitute. Ruth, the Bible has good things to say about Ruth, but Ruth was from the, the kingdom of Moab. And Moab had always been one of the fiercest enemies of Israel. So you've got Tamar, you've got Ruth, right? Tamar, Ruth, and Ruth, Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth, and then you've got Bathsheba. And Bathsheba, well, obviously she was involved with a sexual relationship with David and became the mother of Solomon. But initially Bathsheba was married to a Hittite. And the Hittites were, were a foreign nation to Israel. No, they could not be in the line of uh, accession. So she was married to Uriah the Hittite. So here you've got four women all of them with questionable character. Now, if you were going to search out through the Old Testament to find four women that could be in the ancestry of Jesus, it would be easy enough to find people like Sarah and Rebecca and Leah that you would mention because they are women of good character. But that's not what Matthew does. He lists four women that if you were going to look through the Old Testament, you would search high and low to find four women that, that would be the least likely that you would put in this ancestry. But that's what he does. Why? Most people today, if they're going to list their ancestry, they'd like to find out if they're related to a duke or a president or a czar or a prince or some famous person. You wouldn't list your ancestry if your ancestry included prostitutes, Thieves, murderers, but that's what you see here. He takes pains to point out that Jesus the King included in his heritage these women, prostitutes and aliens. It shows the humility of Jesus, and it also shows that he came to save his people from their sins. And these people needed saving from their sins too. They're included in his ancestry. Open for everybody to see. He's fulfilling the promise made to Abraham. That in him all the peoples on earth will be blessed. And then Matthew continues from Jesus' ancestry. Showing he's the son of Abraham and the son of David. To describing how Jesus' birth was not ordinary, but the result of the direct intervention of God. And you get this in the second part of Matthew chapter 1. And this part I will read to you. It says, now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together... She was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, 
planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep, and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took Mary as his wife, but kept her as a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and she called his name Jesus. Now this may sound not too hard for us, but if you can imagine you're in this kind of society at this time, This would have been a tremendously difficult thing. There's a great difference in what Matthew says and what you see in Luke. In Luke, the angel Gabriel appears to Mary and says that she's going to bear a son. And Mary knows that this can't be possible because she's never had a relationship with a man before. But the angel explains that the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, is going to overshadow her and the child will be the Son of God. To Joseph, and you have to understand, Matthew 1 is more about Joseph. If you go to Luke, it's more about Mary. So with Joseph... The angel tells him, don't be afraid to take Mary home to be your wife because the child is from the Holy Spirit. Jewish weddings were in three stages. First, there was an engagement. And this was usually or often arranged by parents or a matchmaker of some kind. And later came the period that was called the betrothal. And during this betrothal period, it was a legally binding stage. You're not married yet, but you're almost married. You can't live together. And if you decide to break this engagement, this betrothal, you have to get a divorce from the authorities. And during this time, and again, the marriage hasn't taken place yet, but it's almost a marriage. It's a one-year period of time that... You're committed to each other, and if any uh, sexual impurity should be found, for example, during this period is when Mary is found to be pregnant. Okay? This is, you can be stoned to death. Okay? The law says you can be stoned to death. Now, it was rarely implemented. They rarely did it, but the law said it could happen. So if Joseph sees that Mary is pregnant, she, he knows that he hasn't touched her. Now what is Mary going to do? Imagine you're Mary, you're a young woman, 
probably in the early teens, maybe, and you're pregnant, how are you going to explain to Joseph what the angel did, what the angel said? Because what never happened before. So what happens? So the angel goes to Joseph and tells Joseph, this is from the Holy Spirit. This is from the Spirit of God. Don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Joseph is prepared to put away Mary. In other words, to send her away. Now the scripture says that Joseph is a kind man. He's a righteous man. So Joseph is not going to do the things that legally he can do. He's not going to publicly humiliate her. He's not going to have any kind of great punishment put on her. He wants, but he can't marry her. Because if he marries her, everybody's going to say, this man did this. And so all the reproach is going to fall on him as well as Mary. And he's a righteous man. So he's looking for a way out. So he decides he's going to send her away. And to send her away, you have to have a minimum of two witnesses. So this is what he's going to do. He's going to have two witnesses explaining to them this has happened, but he's not going to publicly do it. And then the angel comes to Joseph and says, take her for your wife. This is from the Holy Spirit. And so Joseph, can you imagine? He's going to marry her. He's going to go ahead and take the reproach that's going to come because who else is going to believe this? So he'll take the public reproach and marry Mary and they will have no sexual relationship until after Jesus is born. That's a hard place to be for Joseph and for Mary. But they're obedient to what the Lord says. There's no way that somebody in Mary's status would have the courage or the strength to go to Joseph and try to explain this. The angel had to do it. And it's interesting to see that both Joseph and Mary have the responsibility to name Jesus. The angel tells Mary, you'll call him Jesus. The angel tells Joseph, you'll name him Jesus. And so they name him Jesus. So again, Joseph's character is such that it shows through with the fact that he goes ahead with the wedding regardless of what other people might think. In Matthew... 122, an angel of the Lord says, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And in Luke, the angel tells Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of my spirit of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. Luke uses the same language that I just read here that the angel gave him. It's used, the same language is used at the dawn of creation, where it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, 
And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. Then we're told that the Holy Spirit came and hovered over the waters, and God said, let there be light. In the act of creation, the Spirit is moving on the face of the deep, and out of the nothingness of that darkness, God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, brings forth all of creation. The beginning of life in the first place was through the power of the Spirit of life, God's Spirit. Gabriel was declaring to Mary that same power that made the universe, that brought life out of darkness in the beginning, is the power that's going to overshadow her and produce a son. It's the same language. God doesn't need a human father to bring this about. It's the power of the God that created everything to begin with. From the very beginning, the doctrine of the virgin birth has been foundational to accepting and believing all of Scripture. It's also been one of the most attacked doctrines by people that refuse to believe in God's supernatural work and power. But it's like dominoes, that if you take one doctrine that's essential, or any doctrine that Scripture teaches, (coughs) and you refuse to believe it, then there's no reason you should believe the next doctrine. One doctrine refused, topples another doctrine, which topples another. And before you know it, the wisdom of God is replaced by the so-called wisdom of man. Our brilliant minds don't believe what God can do, and they don't believe what God says. And so you're left to your own devices, you're left in darkness, and the consequences are what we've got in the world today. Confusion and darkness everywhere you look. But the virgin birth is vital to understand and believe. If Jesus had been of a sinful father, a sinful earthly father, then he would have a sinful nature. But he doesn't. He's sinless. But he was born of a woman so that he might be human, but not by a man that he might be sinless. He, or sinful. He's sinless and he's divine. He must be or he can't be the God-man, God with us. Essential doctrine. And it's only when people fabricate ways to get around Scripture that they end up falling into darkness. So, genealogies might seem to be ho-hum. Why do we have to read this? But they're there for a purpose. They're there to show that this person is who he says he is. That he can trace his ancestry back to where God says it has to be traced in order to fulfill what has to be fulfilled 
to be who he says he is. Let's pray. Lord, it's so easy to think that we know more than we do. It's so easy to fall into a trap that um, looks to human wisdom and just um, walks away from the light that's in your word. Lord, I pray that you would preserve us from darkness, preserve us from uh, reading into Scripture what's not there and refusing to see what is. Lord, we pray that you would enlighten our darkness and that our lives, Lord, might reflect the light of your countenance. Pray for understanding and wisdom to your glory. In the name of Jesus, amen. Um, great.